0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Moradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. U.S. inflation has hit a new high of 8.6%, nearly half a point higher than consensus estimates, the highest in more than four decades, again roiling markets as concern mounts that oil will hit $150 a barrel, And 70% of economists now surveyed by the Financial Times and the University of Chicago's initiative on global markets now believe America will be in recession next year. Washington lifted COVID restrictions, entering the nation, heralding an increasingly rapid return to travel normalcy. Other nations are also even easing travel restrictions, including Taiwan, that has shortened its quarantine to three days. But China continues to babble COVID clusters, including in its capital, and lockdowns will remain in place. Russia is trying to encircle Ukrainian forces in Donbas as longtime rival design bureaus, MiG and Sukhoi, are united. And the world's largest land systems show, Eurosatori Satori, convenes in person outside Paris for the first time in two years tomorrow. House and Senate markups on the Biden administration's defense budget are underway as Raytheon Technologies has joined Boeing in relocating its corporal, corporate headquarters uh, to Northern Virginia. Spirit Aerosystems and Sierra Nevada have struck a strategic partnership. That and more. Joining us to discuss... Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rakadron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners, and Richard Avalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh,
1: great to be here, Margot. Thanks. Yeah, thank you as always, Okay.
2: Happy Sunday, Vago. Great to be here.
0: Uh, Happy Sunday uh, to you all. It wouldn't be Sunday if we weren't uh, all getting together and talking. Uh, Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavas Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, Ron, uh, another uh, rocky week consensus estimates that we will be by economists. Uh, I don't want to hit a sore spot because uh, I know how you and many other people on the market think about economists and generally being wrong about things, you know, economics related. Uh, But in this case, 70% uh, see a recession coming, uh, uh, United States tipping into recession next year. We got $150 uh, likelihood of $150. $50 uh, barrel of oil. I want to get uh, Richard's take on that. Um, Bank of England uh, is raising its rates uh, to the highest level in 13 uh, years. The Fed is under enormous pressure to raise rates. uh, And there is, you know, some optimism being expressed by uh, US leaders, uh, including Ben Bernanke, that it's possible that if the uh, Fed acts aggressively enough, we might be able to avert a recession. But that's all macro news. How does all this news uh, been? Uh, how has all of this news been affecting the group?
1: If you look at the S and P on the week, it was down about five percent. And then the other bellwethers that we, we we track on the podcast Boeing was down uh, just almost nine percent. Lockheed three percent. Raytheon Technologies a percent. General Dynamics two percent. Northrop three um, uh, percent. The the ten year yield uh, popped its head well above three uh, percent. That was uh, on Thursday and Friday where. We closed the week at 3.15 uh, percent, and that's that's likely going higher given what the Fed's going to do. WTI crude uh, closed the week at 120, uh, uh, Brent crude at 122, and the VIX uh, index was you know, you know moving towards 30 as we ended the week. So it was it was a pretty bumpy week, uh, and you know the market was was clearly surprised and maybe spooked by the inflation inflation read, which. Um, I, I honestly I, I find surprising i mean we all should have seen this one coming but but anyway nevertheless um it, it surprised the market um on which, you know,
0: which is which is unusual right because they thought it was going to be 8.2 and we have been talking on the show about however unlikely it is that it could go up to 10 percent um and it can't just be the three of us having these conversations right i mean why he, is it everybody was so shocked that it was at
1: 8.6 yeah yeah, yeah I, I, I wish I knew bobgo I wish I knew i mean for the same reason that we were, you know, hearing from, you know, reputable sources that, you know, this was transitory inflation and it wasn't, it's not even close. Um, so, you know, uh, like, you know, we've had in conversations, I mean, we're in an economic environment that, you know, it's uncharted territory. So we'll, we'll see where it all goes. As you know, my fear, and I don't speak for Bank of America, I'm not an economist, um, just the aerospace guy, um, that, uh, you know, inflation can be stickier, uh, uh, for longer than people think. And many people in decision-making, uh, Roles today just weren't in those kind of roles uh, at all last time we saw inflation like this. So, um, you know, just kind of, you know, buckle your seatbelt and we'll see where this all goes. Uh, Hopefully, uh, you know, the more optimistic scenarios play out. I mean, that would be great for everybody involved, uh, but, but we'll see.
0: Um, Let me uh, just briefly, because we're going to talk about the broader inflation impact uh, on manufacturers, escalation clause and air traffic and all that in a a moment. Um, Did markup have any any impact on trading uh, last week as the House and Senate get into the deliberations of the Biden administration's defense budget request?
1: Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't many investor questions on it. So I would say at this point, yeah, probably not. Not so much. Yeah, I think, you know, focus, you know, the market was more focused on the big macro stuff. Uh, Than the markup. You know, all, all else being equal, if if the macro was quiet, the focus would be more on the micro,
0: and uh, you
1: know, the markup is more of a
0: micro issue. And 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 Raytheon and Boeing got hit particularly because of their commercial exposure. Actually, I mean Boeing got hit the worst,
1: uh, down nine percent, probably for a number of reasons. Um, you know, Boeing's just been more volatile, and it's in a, in a little more precarious situation as we've spoken about many times before. Of all the bellwathers, all the bellwethers we follow, actually Raytheon was hit the least. Raytheon was only down a percent. Um, you know, and the and the other defense names were uh, down anywhere from call it two to three percent. So, on the week, um, you know, really the best performers were Raytheon and General Dynamics, uh, and the worst performer of the big big market cap companies we saw that was Boeing.
0: Why why wouldn't the defense stocks be more defensive in a circumstance like this? Well, they haven't. I mean, in, you know, just
1: on on the week they weren't uh, as right. You know, super defensive. But if you look at where they've been since the beginning of the year. They've been, you know, very different. I mean, they're all up in a down market, um, right. Yeah, so they've been very defensive. But I mean, they do, you know, it's not like they're completely insulated from
0: from what's going on in the market. Uh, a traditional, uh, traditional safe harbor. Uh, Sash, uh, you know, mentioned uh, BoE raising uh, rates to a thirteen-year uh, high. Uh, what was uh, what was driving the sector uh, from a European perspective?
3: Interest rates and recession, or recession and interest rates. Your your pick. I mean, it's a very interesting situation. Uh, here in the uh, in the UK and actually across a lot of the rest of Europe that uh, the, the one ingredient that makes recessions really unpleasant is uh, tends to be very high unemployment and at the moment what you have particularly in the UK is incredibly high employment it's just every other statistic that is going the wrong way uh, and you know that certainly uh, spooked the markets I mean just looking at the European aerospace and defense sector I mean Friday was dreadful Friday. Average stock, uh, you know, under our coverage was off about two and a half to three percent. But any of the big civil stocks um, uh, and the stocks where people were taking a a risk off view um, uh, were were easily down four, four and a half percent. So, you know, Rolls-Royce, Leonardo, both down four percent, Airbus off three, Cameron down four percent. It was a it was a really really, real Saffron down three and a half. It was a really tough end. End of the week. Uh, just to pick up on your question about, you know, why why do defence why defence not stocks not defensive? The the horrible answer is that ultimately, um, if fund managers are having redemptions, they're having calls uh, to liquidate part of their portfolio, they're going to have to um, uh, sell some of the stocks that have performed best and some of the stocks that they think are still defensive, just to raise funds. And you certainly see that at, at various stages in the quarter when um, Calls for Redemption's come in. And that that can be one of the reasons why you suddenly get a sort of a non-intuitive Uh, underperformance of of the defensives.
0: Richard, um, let me uh, bring you uh, into this, right? I mean, we've uh, got um, fuel prices uh, that are obviously going up that may have an impact on air travel, right? I mean, there isn't an airline that doesn't take advantage of this to raise uh, rates ultimately, right? There's a lot of uh, still pent up demand, but people are struggling across the board. I mean, we've talked about this inflation impact on travel uh, before. Uh, And on the other hand, the United States and it does, it is going to create certain challenges as well, uh, is easing, uh, the, the testing, uh, restriction before you can come back into the United States, right? I mean, the United States required a negative test result before entering uh, the country, uh, that's been lifted. Uh, I mean, I'm sure to the relief of some, but to the panic of others, uh, talk to us a little bit about what the air travel picture is going to look like, uh, here before we get into sort of a deeper discussion on, um, uh you know, in inflation pressures and, and what that's gonna mean for aircraft manufacturers and airlines alike.
2: Right now, things are still very strong and prices are still very high. You know, normally they say, of course, the cure for high prices is high prices It just, you know, basically disincentivizes people to book tickets and that of course diminishes demand, etc. But right now, people can't wait to fly again. This end of testing requirements is certainly going to make what was already a crazy travel summer even crazier. And the prices are indeed quite crazy. Uh, so I think, unfortunately, again, getting back to that concept that the cure for high prices is high prices, the message is, is being lost on airlines. They feel, are feeling free to raise prices you know, in, by degrees not seen many years, in part because they have to, and because part because they want to. Um, and it's, it's not going to show up in terms of, hey, people are being turned away, you know, where people are turning away from travel. People are still showing up and they're eager to return to flight. Um, that's good. That's certainly good. I think the real concern is that prices stay stubbornly high, fuel stays stubbornly high, and we have a recession and discretionary travel budgets begin to decline. Uh, then you're going to see some damage. But that's realistically not going to happen until later this year, early next year. I'll let Ron weigh in on when we're going to hit a recession. But most people seem to think it's still a bit down the road, I think. Um, at that point, we could be in for a day of reckoning. But right now, it's, uh, it's pretty happy times, uh, despite the higher fuel prices and uh, the resultant ticket prices.
0: Um, China, uh, how does that factor uh, into this, right? I mean, the lockdowns are not being totally lifted, some clusters found in Beijing, uh, Shanghai has problems, Hong Kong's having problems, even if the situation looks better from Taipei, uh, or New Zealand's or wherever else's perspective. Um, You know, how does the testing requirement, you you know, what what is the tail we're seeing here with the United States sort of dropping requirements while uh, at the same time, China maintaining them at one level or another?
2: Well, you know, the overwhelming bulk of the China market is, of course, domestic.
0: It's relatively
2: self-contained. There are limits to that self-containment. You know, Back in 2019, we saw the China market decline, and uh, some of Asia kind of got dragged down with it too. But for the most part, right now, you're seeing decent signs of recovery in most of Asia, but China domestic still looking pretty darn bad. Uh, The government over there has sort of guaranteed for the next few months capacity at 35% of 2019 peaks in the the big 3 Chinese carriers that was necessary because for a time the demand just wasn't there and it's hardly coming back strong you know it's, it's still pretty feeble but you know China again mostly domestic mostly its own part of the universe um, I, I think the big read through is that you know 737 max demand is not what it should be in part because of china a lot of them a lot of those jets they were banking on china to take um airbus to a lesser extent so i think what you've got is a you know kind of a white hot narrow body market that would be insanely hot if china had kicked back in but it just hasn't
0: ron your take i don't have a heck of a lot to add to you
2: know
1: what richard said other than Really, the, the biggest variable in our uh, traffic forecast is is China. Um, you know, the, the rest of the world seems to be tracking in, you know, a, a direction we would all hope. Um, and, you know, we're looking for air traffic to get to 2019 levels in 2023 and surpass it in 2024 on an annual basis. And really, the biggest variable for that happening is China.
0: Sash, I meant to follow up with you. What's what's the positive news, right? I mean, what are some in uh, Europe who are uh, in positive territory despite this uh, economic uncertainty?
3: I mean, this week, very few. But I mean, over the last three months, it's been the defense stocks that have outperformed. Let's be absolutely clear. And particularly the, 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 the smaller or the mid-cap defense stocks, the companies that tend to be towards the beginning of any procurement cycle or have a very high percentage of spares and consumables. So, um, uh, you know, companies like Saab, Rheinmetall in particular have performed, and Kongsberg have performed incredibly well. Uh, this week, no, but I mean, more generally, it, you know, the defence stocks, Babcock has actually had a very good uh, quarter as well. BA Systems, um, reasonably good. Leonardo is uh, had, a, had a big catch up and then actually had a pretty dreadful week. Leonardo in the market can never quite work out whether it's a civil aerospace stock or a defence stock. And... Right its performance can be very volatile, uh, you know, week by week, um, depending on quite which one of those, uh, those views uh, predominate.
0: Richard, uh, let me uh, bring you to the topic of inflation, Uh, right? I mean, at at some point at 8.6 or 10%, I mean, we've been talking about this topic for um, uh, months now on the program, Um, while defense programs are somewhat isolated because contracts are our longer term uh, basis. At some point, There are escalator clauses that kick in for everything from defense contractors that have to go to the government and and make the case why they should be getting more money, just like airlines can do it. And rising fuel prices also have impacts on airlines and how they buy airplanes. Talk to us a little bit about inflation and fuel prices and what that's going to mean for the segment as a whole, going everything from defense contracts uh, all the way over uh, to aircraft contracts. And Sash and Ron want to get your take uh, on that as well. Go ahead, Richard.
2: This is going to get messy, as it were, because most defense contracts that are, you know, cost plus incentive or cost plus are pretty well protected against inflation. Firm fixed price, far less protected. And uh, maybe this informs sort of uh, Boeing's woes these days because they're heavily exposed to a bunch of firm fixed price contracts. Most notably KC-46, where they've already taken hits ditto for T-7. And while they might go hat in hand back to the you know, Pentagon, it might not work, you know, because it's very tough for the Pentagon in terms of contracting mechanisms to distinguish between cost overruns and inflation. Like, you know, hey, this is a cost overrun. You should have anticipated inflation. And sometimes they get pretty hard about it. You know, we all remember, well, most of us uh, <laughs> on this call remember the A-12 disaster which was, of course, a massive cost overrun that resulted in a canceled contract for a variety of reasons. But the Pentagon simply said, no, and if it doesn't work, you know, it's it's over. So that's a real area of concern, firm fixed price contracts and defense. Now you get to the commercial side, and here's where it's just as spotty. You know, Boeing is very proud of their escalation clauses with commercial. Um, and, of course, they allow for inflation based upon a publicly available economic uh, econometric inflator. Like, hey, this is the number, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics or whoever Bureau of Economic Analysis uses, this is the number we're using, this is why you have to pay more, have a nice day. It's not clear to what extent Airbus has that too. Um, that's, gonna be a, that's gonna be a major variable because, you know, if we are looking at a couple of years in this uh, high single digit range, that's pretty damaging for an industry with razor-thin margins. But most of all, you've got the suppliers. You know, Just because there are escalator clauses uh, at Boeing, and we don't know about Airbus, it doesn't mean it trickles down. For risk-sharing partners, major risk-sharing partners, you know, the likes of Spirit or Mitsubishi, they probably get the X percent of the inflated price, which means they're hedged also. They're protected too. But there are so many suppliers in the second and third tier that are not RSPs and therefore probably don't have anything like this level of protection. And you're talking about a supply chain that's already extremely fragile, starved for working capital, just gone through the worst industry downturn in the history of the business. And now they're being asked to ramp up to 70 something for Airbus narrow bodies, you know, and and a higher rate at, at Boeing too. Are they going to be able to do that and are Boeing and Airbus are going to have to say, yes, we may be protected against inflation, especially at Boeing, but our contractors, the people who actually make the higher numbers happen, are we going to have to give them money to get them to that you know better place? And you're already hearing talk of lots of squabbles in terms of what's needed to get to this higher level. The good old days where Boeing could impose, you know, partnership for success, aka partnership for poverty, upon its supply chain, and just say, "Okay, you're all giving us back eight percent," you know, those days are being reversed. They're going to have to rethink their approach to the supply chain. Sash, Airbus,
0: Europe, impact. Your oh, sense? Look, Airbus definitely has
3: price escalation clauses. I, you know, as I, I, was, I was very interested by. Richard's description of Boeing as being very proud of them because I think that would pretty much sum up Airbus as well. I think the degree to which, you know, they write these clauses into the contracts, the airline doesn't really notice them at the point that the contract is written. And lo and behold, five years later, they, the airline is paying a price that is different to what they thought they were paying because the price escalators have just kicked in very quietly every single year. It's, uh, it, you know, it's one of the dirty little secrets of the industry. Uh, And it's why the OEMs have have such a a strong position. Um, But look, everything that Richard said uh, about the US industry applies to Europe, because we're talking actually about a global supply chain. And um, escalation clauses break down very quickly below the OEMs. And actually, I don't think the engine companies got anything like the same sort of protection. We're already seeing just some signs that the suppliers are under much greater strain than anybody expected. I mean, Airbus referred to this a bit in, in, their, in their Q1. And eventually the suppliers become a collection of very, very um, uh, long poles in the tent. And that's when it, you know, that's when the um, OEMs have to uh, just have to stop and pause and realise that they can't inflict. Um, damage on the supply base if they want the supply base to be there for.
0: I, I think any, uh, any company is proud of its escalator clause, right? I mean, nobody's going to be leaving money on the table if they, uh, uh, unless they can possibly uh, avoid it. And I should have pointed out to the audience that there, uh, there are lawmakers who are very cognizant that the uh, Pentagon is dealing with inflationary pressures and does want to give the department uh, potentially tens of billions of dollars more uh, in order to cover that uh, impact, even, even though the comptroller of the Pentagon has said Uh, Mike McCord has said, you know, that it's not a direct 10% impact uh, on 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 the department. But hey, if somebody's willing to give you 80 billion more dollars, you'd be crazy not to take it Uh, 70 billion more dollars or 50 billion or 30 or even 10 billion dollars. Ron, your your sense on all of this, uh, and where we're going and what the material impact on companies are. I mean, this is a conversation we keep having, but we keep getting a little bit more clarity and a little more information each week we go along. What's your sense? On, on both prices, escalators, uh, including on the defense side, if you will, uh, and what companies are saying about that, at what point they'll have to go to the department for redress.
1: I don't have much to add to what uh, both uh, Sasha and Richard said. I mean, that's kind of, kind of right online. I mean, just on the commercial side, just maybe just on when you go down into the supply chain, like, like Sasha, it gets, it, gets, it gets more difficult. Uh, so, you know, when we start thinking about inflation, that's the impact that it has on not just necessarily the engine suppliers, but the tier threes and the tier fours and, and, that, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then on, on defense, my sense has been, and, and correct me you know, if, if you disagree, that, it, you know, the DOD doesn't want to, you know, how can I say it? I mean, it's, it's not in their, their mission when they, when they do acquisition to sort of stick it to the supply chain in terms of inflation even on uh, fixed price contracts that, um, you know, that, that if companies can come with a reasonable case on, on what's going on with costs, that, that, that they can get some offset for, for inflation. Now, you know, if they can't pass it through immediately and there'll be a delay of, of timing, right? But that there'll, there'll be some, um, you know, offset there. Now, I, I just kind of worry about um, as we move uh, into, uh, you know, over the next six months into next year, uh, just alluding to kind of what Richard was talking about earlier in terms of the uh, impact that has on demand for, for air travel. Uh, you, know, if, you know, if ticket prices stay high enough, long enough, uh, eventually, you know, one would think that they'd have an impact on, on air travel. And, and, you know, when I think about, you know, what's, what's going on potentially, right. I mean, there's a lot of catch up travel going on. Um, I know that's the case for me uh, and I can't imagine I'm not different than most people, uh, but then, you know, the, the comp, if you will, year on year, once that passes, gets a lot harder on you know the year-on-year year, travel growth, uh, you know for the, you know, the Epstein clan or the Epstein business. Um, so so we'll see where it all goes, and that comp gets particularly harder uh, in an environment where airline ticket prices are um, you know even that much more expensive. So so we'll see where it goes. Uh,
0: and um, oil prices and um, airlines' interest in buying airplanes or not.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's a good question, right? I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the thinking has been, and if you go back to 2013, uh, when interest rates were lower than they are today, and just, you know, even though interest rates are going up, I mean, they're still, you know, relative, pretty low. Uh, but when they were just really, really low, and, and oil were, was, again, at these prices, we saw airlines, you know, buying, buying airplanes, and the, and the mantra at the time was, uh, you, know, you get the new kit to, kind of, to be more fuel efficient. Um, the, the, the two difficulties there today are a couple of difficulties, maybe more than two. One, balance sheets for most airlines around the world are definitely more wonky than they were back then. I mean, airline balance sheets in general aren't great, but particularly coming off of COVID, they're pretty bad. Um, so that, that's one issue. And then the second issue, and probably the more important issue, is just the supply chain itself. Everything we've talked about that, you know, if, if airlines could even take more airplanes today, if they could finance them, in some cases they could. Um, they're just not available because of supply chain constraints. So what we're seeing happen is a lot of airplanes that we thought would be scrapped uh, or, you know, potentially scrapped are coming back into service. Uh, and then that, in a way, kind of puts even more pressure on the supply chain because As these older airplanes come back into service, they're going to need parts and service and MRO and all that sort of thing. But if you need, if you want lift and you need immediate lift and you can't get it from the OEs, you're going to, you're going to take your airplanes that are parked and and bring them back in. And then on the balance sheet, it's potentially, at least in the short term, a lot easier on an airline if you already own the airplane or if you already have a lease on an airplane um, than trying to get out of a lease or uh, an asset that you already own and replacing it with a new asset. You just don't have the balance sheet expense.
0: Uh, I honestly thought that there was a non-hush-kitted airplane uh, that I heard uh, recently. And I, I just was thinking to myself, look, looking up uh, through a gray sky and trying to figure out whether or not uh, there was a non-hush-kitted 727 or uh, old MD-80 that somebody pulled out uh, and put and, in the air because they just needed they just needed an airplane there.
2: I'd love to kick in one point, um, which is that there's probably more good than bad. You know, July 2008, of course, spot market for oil hit 147, the all-time record, which we may or may not be heading towards matching. And um, that was exactly the very month that the C-Series back then, A220, was launched, uh, along with the new generation of engines that everyone is buying, you know, geared turbofan, pure power, and and LEAP-1. Nothing focuses the mind like the side of the gallows. And high oil prices inspire people to buy new jets, to launch new jets. I tend to think there's more good than bad. If this is not a one- or two-year spike, if we're in for some sort of perpetual dystopian world of $150 a barrel oil, oh, yes, then be very worried. But if we're looking at just a, a one- or two-year reminder that fuel prices can be disastrous if you don't have the latest equipment for you know, price-sensitive commodity routes, domestic market routes, then I think there's more good than bad, uh, unless, of course, interest rates spike too and make financing these new jets that much more uh, problematic. But if financing stays reasonable and fuel prices are at a point where they remind everybody of the need to finance, with new, finance their new jets, there's more good than bad for the industry.
0: Does, does that drive a green and sustainable travel faster, right? I mean, do these two things become synonymous and um, all of these things that are now seen as somewhat esoteric become much more central?
2: Well, sure. You know, as a matter of fact, people ask what killed the prop fan. We all remember the original crop of prop fans back in the late 80s. I would argue that it was fuel's tendency to go back down to 22 bucks a barrel. (laughs) All of a sudden, you put that prop fan back in the museum and say, what were we thinking? But if we're looking at a new environment, that encourages uh, sustainability. Uh, You know, not much you can do to accelerate hybrid electric or hydrogen or anything like that. But in terms of uh, new possibilities, you know, be it, Prop fans or ultra high bypass or new generations of turbines, or even to return to turboprops, uh, I think it would probably be some good there. Uh,
0: there are a number of cat and dog uh, elements. Ron, start us off Raytheon Technologies. Uh, Raytheon has been a Massachusetts company throughout its history. Uh, United Technologies has had several horns. Obviously, it was a Boeing company and was uh, United Aircraft and was broken up. Uh, big antitrust uh, uh, suit um then we had united technologies then it merged with raytheon latest then a string of companies to relocate to northern virginia does it mean anything anymore i mean what what's it what's it tell us i guess now l3 is one of the only companies that is not based in washington dc or the washington dc area anymore
1: yeah yeah that's 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 right um yeah, I, I I believe that that you know they you know, Raytheon was you know contemplating a move to Washington for a while, uh, and uh, my sense is that made have might have happened now. In that one, it's my sense that their executive team is spending more time in, in Washington, uh, which makes sense uh, uh, given their positioning as a defense contractor. And two, um, they have uh, how, how do you say leaned forward on. You know, hot desking and, you know, how moving forward with a, a workforce that's got a, a more flexible uh, office um, situation than they did pre-COVID. So kind of giving, given all those uh, considerations, uh, I think that all came together for the, for the move to Washington. Um, for, for us, I mean, it was really um, no. not all that meaningful, honestly, right? I mean, you know, they're a large, large, a large defense contractor and also a large uh, commercial supplier, uh, and, and moving from Boston to Washington it doesn't seem to have a heck of a lot of, of impact on the business. So it's, it's 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 a little more understandable than Boeing's move, right? I mean, I think we'd all be. In, I'm speaking for the consensus here. I think that you know a, a, a move back to Seattle might have made more sense to Boeing, given you know the issues on the commercial side. That you know that Raytheon really doesn't have any specific issues anywhere. You know that, that are as material. Um, that, that, as Boeing, so just maybe relocating to a place that's a little more convenient for um, you know, the, the executive team might make sense.
0: Um, I, I would also point out, right, I mean, at this point, Boeing uh, is here as well, uh, right? I mean, so you could justify that, well, I mean, one of your biggest customers, you know, their headquarters is here, might as well have our headquarters here as, uh, as, as well.
2: I would point out that it always seems like big news, but it really isn't because you look at the structure of uh, you know the very largest aerospace and defense contractors these days. and uh, you know the corporate HQ just seems to matter less and less per each year. You know, it's the operating units that are hugely important. I thought it was bigger news when Boeing's defense unit relocated here than it was when their HQ relocated here. And Raytheon, of course, you know, look, the center of power is, you know, centers of power are in places like Hartford or, or Tucson or what have you. Right. Um, you know, DC matters, but not a whole lot more than it did. It's not like it's going to be more than a few hundred jobs.
0: Very quickly, I should have asked this question uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'll, I'll ask you, uh, uh, Ron. Um, Spirit AeroSystems, obviously a very important and innovative company in the ecosystem, uh, and Sierra Nevada, another highly uh, innovative uh, company in the ecosystem, have struck a strategic partnership on space. What does that mean uh, when two companies like this uh, get together? One privately owned, the other a publicly traded company, and and what do you think this means? Because normally there is a bigger strategic goal in mind, right? I mean, people begin to think about whether that's a precursor for a potential deeper transaction, uh, what have you. I mean, what, what's what's the street's response been, and and your response been to the to the announcement?
1: A couple things to unpack there quickly. Um, you know, one uh, Spirit AeroSystems has tried to diversify their business. Um, you know, particularly outside of commercial markets and away from Boeing. Uh, this does that. Uh, this is uh, in commercial space. Uh, Sierra Space has been, is one of the, the in key innovators in, in space. Uh, and, and in this case for, you know, manned space travel, uh, they've got the Dreamcatcher vehicle. Uh, and I believe the announcement between uh, Spirit and Sierra was on uh, an, an arrangement where they'll work together on, I think it's called a Shooting Star cargo um, um, container, which attaches to the Dreamcatcher. Um, so, you know, I, I, the short of it is, I think, from a Wall Street perspective, on the private side, you know, public markets, there's really not much to say there. And then on the public side, it just it just is consistent with a, a strategy that Spirit's been trying to pursue in terms of uh, diversifying the business. Uh, broadly more, does this a precursor to some sort of broader um, trans, you know, uh, transaction relationship between, between the companies. I, I think it'd be really pre- premature to say that. I and mean, I, I, you know, I honestly don't know, um, but it's, um, you know, you you got uh, an innovator who's looking for a shop who can help them fabricate some stuff. That's what Spirit does. And Spirit's looking to diversify and this, that's what this does. So it's, it seems like, you know, there's, there's wins on both, both sides for both companies.
0: Both uh, strategically very interesting companies and uh, essential. You know, you just look at where Sierra has come. Um, say, you know, from from a bomb rack uh, maker to where it is right now is simply incredible. And then uh, the capability that Spirit brings uh, to the entire equation, right? I mean, their ability, you know, Boeing's ability to build 737s are really based, uh, you know, depend on Spirit being able to generate those fuselages uh, and get them across the country. And
1: I would argue, argue. I mean, probably more importantly is. Spirit's capability in composites is pretty much unmatched, right? I mean, they're right. they're probably the most advanced um, uh, composite manufacturer for aerospace and defense applications anywhere, right? right? I mean, you know, they're they're on the B-21, they're on the 787, they're on the A350. So when you think about the major commercial and defense programs that require composite structure, they're a key player on all of them.
0: Uh, and, uh, of course, Tom uh, and Duane and the entire team there have been working really, really hard to expand the, the company's defense base and sort of balance out uh, the, uh, the commercial dependence uh, of, the, of the company. And we're going to be talking to them again uh, uh, very soon. Um, Richard, Mig and Sukhoi, uh, two companies, uh, right? I mean, everybody always has a, a, the tendency of thinking of the Soviets as... Uh, Sort of a state run model, but actually, it was a pretty innovative ecosystem where there was actually a significant amount of competition. And these were two companies that would duke it out all the time uh, to try to furnish the Soviet Union and then the Russian Federation with the best combat aircraft. uh, They are now finally merging. There's been a lot of discussion about this, uh, but two companies with uh, very distinct ways of doing things, uh, you know, maybe getting into a shotgun marriage. What What does this mean? And I want to use this to sort of pave the way for Sash to come in here uh, in a moment and talk to us a little bit about um, Eric Trappier's comments in front of uh, the National Assembly.
2: Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a shotgun marriage uh, with a guaranteed life of poverty, you know, the one uh, <laughs> unintended uh, consequence or one... Uh, of blowback, I think, from this war is probably the collapse in Soviet, sorry, Russian defense exports. You know, I mean, you look at uh, India's decision to terminate a Kamov helicopter contract recently. They didn't come out and say, we've seen your products in action. They're not very good. They didn't need to say that. But I think more importantly, what they did say was, we have doubts about your ability to execute, given the fact that you no longer have access to global technologies. And frankly, we even have doubts about, your ability to make payment, receive payment, given your complete, uh, you know, removal from the world banking system. So you're talking about a greatly diminished environment. This is an arms industry that had a very heavy dependence upon exports. Now, as you mentioned, you know, they've been trying to merge for years. MIG had kind of ceased to matter. It's been a very long time since they've designed anything. If you remember the Article 142 that they put out sometime in the 90s, and then it showed up in some sad, abandoned graveyard of defense, rusted defense projects outside of Moscow. Um, you know, it's it's tough to believe that they matter very much. So this is, if anything, just sort of uh, you know a statement about the likely future implosion of the Russian defense industrial base based upon greatly diminished export prospects
0: um sash anything you want to add no, i'm not I, I think you got that uh absolutely right i think what's
3: also interesting and i mean this is you know again the impact of uh sanctions is just the degree to which you're we're now starting to see the entire russian aviation ecosystem um uh, support itself or, or or support each other so uh, we had we had the other week the Announcement of a potential order from Aeroflot and a bunch of other Russian airlines for Russian aircraft. Now, no, no kidding. Of course they are, because they can't buy aircraft from anywhere in the West, uh, and they seem to have stolen a whole load of aircraft from uh, from the West as well. But you know what we're going to see over time, and it's going to take a long time to Russianize uh, either the MC Twenty One or the uh, or the Superjet fully. But you know we're going to see Russia becoming a completely internally focused, internally looking civil aviation market, as well as military aviation market. Uh, and that's a big change. And I think ultimately, Russian industry comes out of this weaker. That's why you have to see the design bureaus uh, merge, because there just isn't enough business for uh
0: and, uh and indeed, right. I mean, Superjet was an important uh, uh, Russian-Italian uh, cooperative uh, venture. Um, that uh, I remember at the time, right, Silvio Berlusconi saying, the future of Italian aerospace is in Russia. Uh, that was uh, seen by by many, including those uh, in, uh, at the time, Finn Mechanica and later Leonardo, with some alarm, uh, because I don't think that they necessarily saw the future uh, as, as purely being Russian. Uh, yeah, either. well, so,
3: Silvio Berlusconi says and said a lot of things. Not all of them were necessarily terribly sensible.
0: Uh, yes, uh, alas, but he's still on the scene. Uh, yeah. So you got to uh, give, him, give him credit for that. Um, Eric Trappier, uh, highly respected CEO of Dassault Aviation, uh, one of the l- leading men in the field. Uh, and, and certainly the Rafale has been remarkably successful. We've talked on this program about the engineering capability, the formidable capabilities the company has, uh, as, as well as its sense that it should be in charge of major programs like SCAF, Um, and, uh, Sash, what, and and Richard, I want to get your sense, uh, as well, um, what Trappier's comments to the national assembly mean, uh, start us off, Sash.
3: Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, this was actually, uh, this is kind of, there's been a bit of a refrain of stuff that Trappier has been saying in the, in the, in the last couple of weeks and indeed for the last year or so, but, um, you know, and upfront, I think Trappier is one of the strongest defense CEOs out there. Uh, certainly in a a European context and probably more than that. And the degree to which Dassault has managed to completely turn around the commercial uh, success, export success of Rafale, at the same time, totally reinvesting in the Falcon family so that it will have Falcon 6X, Falcon 10X, plus the the older legacy aircraft, really being a very strong high-end business jet company uh, in the second half of the decade. Huge kudos to him for that. The subject is SCAF, the, the Franco-German-Spanish um, uh, future fighter, future combat air system. And Dassault has always played hardball in this and said, uh, I mean, the, 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 the term that's used often is, it should be le- led by the best athlete, um, which I'm getting very bored of, uh, because all that means is it should be led by France stroke Dassault. Um, there's no other, you know, it's, it's got nothing to do with athletics. It's just you know, we are the lead, or at least we think we're the lead, and we're therefore going to lead the programme. And this is clearly becoming very difficult for the Germans to take because they're going to put up 50% of the cash and and not receive 50% of the the technology and the work share, uh, which seems an unfair uh, balance. So Eric Chapier was talking again in Paris uh, this week, or last week, rather, and was very, very clear that uh, negotiations with Airbus and with Germany Uh, and this is Airbus Defence Space, remember, based in Germany, on the the terms and conditions for SCAF have stalled. And, you know, they're they're not even talking at the moment. And he's now referring to this as being the lost decade. I think that we had already lost, we we talked about this when we talked about NGAD last week, that the European programmes had to some extent lost a year or so because of COVID, because just not very much uh, was occurring then. But Clearly, SCAF or the mood music is that SCAF has been, uh, you know, has just not made a great deal of progress in the last two, two and a half years at all, at all. Um, and he's now saying, most likely, that whatever entered service in the 2040s is going to be what he refers to as the Mark I, and that, the, the you know, the main uh, full fat aircraft system is really only going to enter service in the 2050s. I think that we're seeing Eric Trappier playing politics. I'm not entirely convinced this is terribly advisable. I think what he's doing is sending very, very tough messages to uh, the new French government. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has had a massive change of his cabinet. Uh, there's a new French defense minister, Sébastien Le replacing Florence Parly. I think it's a shame. I think Florence Parly was a fantastic defense minister, but you know presidents have the right to change their cabinet, and that's what President Macron has done. And a new French foreign minister, um, Catherine Colonna, um, who I think will be very interesting for the Franco-British relationship because she was the former ambassador to the UK. Um, My sadness is that she replaces Jean-Yves Le Drian, one of the great French foreign ministers of his time, and the architect of Raphael exports, and indeed almost every French export over the last decade and a half. He has been a tireless exporter uh, for France, astonishingly successful, and is a man of enormous wisdom. Uh, I think he'll be hugely missed by France and by French industry. But um, to come back to Dasso, I think what we're seeing here is Eric Trapier laying down, not necessarily laying down the law. I think that would be really unwise, but just laying down the facts as he sees them about Franco-German cooperation and making it very clear to the two uh, new ministers that, um, you know, these aren't just red lines. These are red trenches, which France cannot cross. Um, and that's going to, you know, I think that's going to make the upcoming uh, Franco-German summit particularly difficult because Olaf Scholz, who's not had a terribly good couple of months, I think, you know, wants to get the, the Franco-German relationship back on course. Eric Trappier is clearly prepared not to do that. Um, we've said, for you know, several times that we think that Dassault has been preparing plan B, which is effectively, you know, uh, Rafale for the 21st century. Uh, a brand new Franco-French combat air system. Um, I don't think Eric Trappier would be terribly sad if that happened because I think they think that they have got now the export basis on which to uh, to sell that aircraft. Um, but it would clearly be an enormous blow to Franco-German cooperation.
0: Uh, and uh, time is uh, running very short, very briefly. Do you think that, I mean, there are many Germans who would much rather be partnered with England and resuscitate uh, the Eurofighter uh, partnership. There's the Italian element in, in that. Uh, as well, I mean, any chance of that happening, or is the is this program going to stay as a Franco-German program from your perspective?
3: Well, SCAF is going to stay as a Franco-German program, and if the French are going to lead it, then the British won't join. Period. Neither of all the Italians. Actually, neither. Right, ones, but I'm, I'm saying the, do the
0: Germans so, leave SCAF and join Tempest uh, instead.
3: If they, if they were to do that, I think they would find that their position in Tempest would be junior to their position in Eurofighter, simply because there's more partners in it. You know, the Swedes are in it, and Swedes are in first. And so the Swedes will have a very, very strong view as to the re- whatever relationship the, the Germans take in it. If the Japanese join Tempest, even in an associate form, they will have a vote as well. I think um,
2: we're getting quite close to the Germans having left it too late
0: fascinating. Richard, anything uh, you want to add to that?
2: Oh, just a very strong agreement. You know, I mean, the natural order of things is that Germany joins Britain. And the idea of a Franco-German fighter has been doomed from the start. Very foolish. Uh, and Trapier's comments reflected another effort to lay down the law, as, uh, as Sash put it, and uh, reflect reality. You know, I mean, the, the ultimate Google nope, you know, the absolutely no results from Google is successful Dassault aircraft joint ventures with anybody yet no you're you're not going to get an answer there there's none you know even within the context of french combat aircraft joint ventures or combat vehicle of any kind joint ventures Dassault just plays by its own rules makes its own planes they do a great job with it and yes there'll be a franco-french outcome it's a matter of time
0: Ron, you were in uh, Bentonville, home of Walmart, uh, to a Walmart family-funded unmanned uh, aircraft demonstration. Talk to us a little bit about what you saw and why it's so interesting.
1: Yeah, so I attended the uh, Up Summit, uh, which uh, was all about the future mobility. I think there was probably about 250 people there. The the Waltons are a part of the part sponsor of it, among among other companies, uh, and we saw. Uh, everything from, you know, uh, 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 hydrogen-powered, uh, tr- you know, trucks to, um, e- e- you know, electric-powered aircraft, both CETAL and, and VTAL, uh, and kind of everything in between. So it was a pretty fascinating view. Uh, I'd say probably the, one of the more exciting things we saw there was there's a small company up in uh, Burlington, Vermont, Beta Technologies, uh, and they have an aircraft called Alia and the CETAL version of it there. They flew it there from Burlington to uh, to um, Bentonville uh, and just to kind of put this in perspective if you were to fly a Cessna Grand Caravan from uh, Burlington to Bentonville you'd probably spend about $3,000 on gas that's assuming 7 hours of flight 50 gallons an hour uh, and 8 bucks a gallon uh, for uh, for Jet A uh, turboprop um, and the ALEA to fly there uh, was about $180 all in, in terms of energy <laughs> so it's kind of shows you sort of the promise of some of this stuff, right? I mean, and granted, I mean, it's all it's kind of out there. And, and it's very not, quiet. It's, it's super quiet. Yeah, it, it flies by and you could mistake it for I don't know, maybe a hairdryer or a washing machine. I mean, it's just super quiet. Um, so uh, but it, I guess the whole point is this So, However, I mean, it's it's just interesting to see a lot of this innovative work going on um, capital going into this, you know, you know, we've all seen it in some public markets, but definitely in private markets. And, you know, when it, when it's all said and done, I do think there's going to be some meaningful innovation that comes out of this, that will find its way into, um, our lives one way or another. We'll see, we'll see how it all, how it all pans out, but it, but it was definitely interesting to spend some time there and use kind of both half of my, my brain, the finance side and also the engineer side.
0: Did you, uh, were you impressed by the engineering?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, impressed. Definitely impressed by, uh, a lot of the, the innovation going on and what people are trying to do. You know, it's early days for a lot of this stuff. So we'll see ultimately you know, what, what pans out. But, um, and some of it's pretty thoughtful. And, you know, what's fascinating is, you know, so, sometimes when you, when you bring this technology to market, it, it can be used in ways you wouldn't have dreamed of. Uh, one of the companies that presented uh, was Blade. Uh, you know, Blade uh, operates, you know, helicopters, you know, basically um, on uh, high density routes and they're, they're advertising a lot in the New York area. But one of the businesses that's become kind of more profitable for them is actually moving organs around. Um, so there's ways that this technology can kind of work its way into um, into life that aren't aren't necessarily the Jetsons flying around New York City, but other places that you can apply this technology where it's pretty useful.
0: And as gas goes to 150 or more uh, dollars a barrel on a sustained i mean i didn't ask you guys whether or not we think gas is going to stay sustained but i think it's a little bit early (laughs) to be uh to be having that uh to be having that conversation and obviously we're going to see what president biden's visit uh to saudi arabia holds uh and and what we're going to see from uh the kingdom um we have about a minute and a half left sash you get the last minute and a half barring uh, any objection from the rest of our team uh Talk to us about the uh, Russia's war on on Ukraine continues to grind on. Uh, Moscow obviously trying to cut off uh, Ukrainian forces. Uh, in a pivotal battle for Donetsk. Uh, arguably, if the Russians win, they could say, hey, we accomplished uh, our aims uh, and then leave. Nobody expects that because they expect uh, the Terminator to keep uh, eating up uh, more parts of Ukrainian territory and God forbid the Ukrainian army gets cut off. And as this is happening, Eurosatary convenes for the first time in, in person uh, and obviously one of the world's most important and certainly the largest land systems show. Uh, and what you think key themes are going to be. Really quick, give us your Sense on what's going on uh, with the war and what you think uh, has been so interesting and different over the past week, and what do you think the key storylines are going to be uh, at your Saturday? Uh,
3: I think, I mean, look, the war grinds on, uh, and it's very much turned into a, 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 a brutal artillery war, uh, which favors the Russians because they've got shorter lines of uh, communication and hence of resupply, and it's a salient, and salients can and are easily shelled from two, three, four more sides. The surprise, frankly, I think has been that uh, Ukraine has not lost the whole of the town or city of Severodonetsk. Um, uh, They have held out astonishingly continue to do so, but uh, this is a very, very brutal war at the the moment and materiel favours the Russian side, uh, which is an uncomfortable position uh, for the Ukraine, very uncomfortable position for the Ukrainians to be in. Eurosatary, um, yeah, the biggest uh, land systems show period, um, I'm really looking forward to it uh, I think three themes, first uh, let's go back to Franco-German politics MGCS, the main ground combat system, uh, main ground combat system is tanks, what SCAF-FCAS is to uh, fast air um, it's a future um, um, it, actually they're pretty un- unapologetic, it's a future made battle tank, to replace Leopard 2 and that's a, that's a big ask, and to replace Leclerc if anybody, apart from French, really cared about re- replacing Leclerc. Um, I think the problem with MGCS is that the Germans, in a slightly quieter way, are being as strict about MGCS leadership as France is about um, uh, FCAS leadership. Uh, if you apply a better athlete role, then it'll be a German-led, it'll be a German-dominated programme, because Leopard 2 is way better and has sold way better than, uh, than Leclerc, and uh, that's pretty uncomfortable if you are the next air uh, side of uh, KNDS. Two other topics. Um, uh, one, infantry fighting vehicles. There's a big recapitalization process going on in Europe at the moment. And whether you want your IFE wheeled or tracked, uh, most Eastern European countries, and indeed even in, in West Europe, are, are buying huge numbers of IFEs or looking for more. And I would expect almost everything there to be tilted towards this theme, and anything that isn't tilted towards IFVs is gonna be about indirect fires. Um, Big tracked 155 millimeter uh, uh, systems down to slightly more mobile, but still physically enormous uh, wheels, or sorry, truck mounted 155 millimeter systems, and uh, possibly something slightly more um, uh, more innovative in terms of uh, MLRS type systems that's the other area that where europe needs enormous recapitalization and i would i would hope to see a lot of uh, possible solutions there every eurosatuary i've been to for the last two decades everything has been painted sand colored i hope we're going to get back to seeing stuff painted olive drab because the sand stuff doesn't matter
0: anymore. We certainly look forward to having you back on uh, next week for a special program from there. And we're going to be uh, uh, devoting some time for, to remote coverage, uh, including with some interviews with senior U.S. Army leaders, French leaders, as well as French uh, uh, senior executives. Thanks very much again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Wouldn't be Sunday uh, without you guys. I uh, hope you guys have a great uh, day, a great week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Bon voyage. Uh, next week, uh, Sash, and uh, we'll have you back on around midweek. Look forward to it. Thanks. Thanks, Vago. It's always a pleasure.
2: Thanks very much for doing this, Vago. Great to be here.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.